0: Before we start the episode, we wanted to present this content warning. In the course of talking about user experience, our guest Christopher Harrington discusses the user experience of his partner Bill as he undergoes treatment for cancer. The user experience is presented as exemplary as the kind of thing we can set up when we care about users. Nevertheless, we realize that this is a topic some people would rather not hear about. If that's you? Please skip this episode or stop listening when we switch to that topic. That said, we'll start the show. You're listening to The Omni Show. Get to know the people and stories behind the Omni Group's award-winning productivity apps for Mac and iOS. M-U-S-I-C. We have a very special episode today we have Christopher Harrington on the line. Christopher is director of user experience at Gartner, and he's an Omnigraffle user. Say hello, Christopher. Hello, Brent Simmons. Oh, come on now, You're
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> I have an unbroken streak, you will in not. My, uh... in, 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 my, in my best try for a Dave Chappelle Prince impression. So... <laughs> <laughs> Assemble your crew. I can't. I can't do it as well as you can, but you know, I try. Uh, but I can do. I can do. I can do a hello, Christopher. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. If you want to intro me again, say hello. Um, yeah. Well, we're gonna leave all this in. Oh, bloody hell! So <laughs>
0: say hello, Christopher. Hello, Christopher. Thank you. That wasn't so hard. No. <laughs> so, um, you're an omnigraphful user, and as director of user experience. Uh, those two things
1: fit together. So they do. What do you do with Omnigraphle? What's what's going on? Right. So I've been an Omnigraphle user for since the dawn of time. That was Omnigraphle 3.0. I want to say before that even. Wow. That's before the dawn of time. Yeah. I want to say that. I want to say I was in the 2X, but I'm trying to remember the exact date. I'm pretty sure it was before 2001. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I could be entirely wrong about this. My dates are very bad, but I've been an avid Omnigraffle, uh, not only user, but also proponent. I've hipped a lot of folk to Omnigraffle back when the whole information architecture, web design, let's call it web 1.0 before mm-hmm. before the original .com burst, right? Yep. Yeah. And I used it, and as the product improved and gained new features, I used them and incorporated those features into my workflow almost immediately. When you started to be able to embed objects into OmniGraphle, embed other pieces of OmniGraphle documents into OmniGraphle, that was huge for doing, for example, website layouts or what have Mm. you. And because only a small portion of my work ever involved creating layouts or wireframes, I would use other tools to do the other bits right mm-hmm. and one of the other tools I used was also Omni Outliner. Ah. and I use Omni Outliner for a great number of things it 's a very simple application, and because of its simplicity, it has a very broad appeal. It allows me to do a lot of things because it doesn't try to get in my way, which is consequently actually why I'm not an omni focus person. Because I was a GTD script for Omni-outliner person back uh. in the day, and I got to the point where I, I had a what I call like a moment of clarity when I realized that I was fiddling too much with the making lists and making sure they were all in the appropriate direction. And, and you know, they were they were hoisted and they were this, didn't they, they were that. And then I was like, you know what? Or alternatively, I could just write this all in notepad and um, just <laughs> get crap done, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's much more of a unitasker, whereas Omni Outliner is much more of a multitasker. I can create notes in it. I can create outlines in it. Or through the power of your sort of cross-app Compatibility. I was able to create an outline in OmniOutliner, Outliner, literally drag that file into OmniGraphle and create a sitemap. Wow, nice! With very little interaction on my part. Mm. So mm. with OmniGraphle, you know, I still do layouts, and to me, it is also a multitasker. It allows me to do anything. I can create layouts with it. I can do floor plans with it. Recently, I was creating a sound diagram for trying to place my speakers in my AV room. I have a Mm. very small room and I have Mm. very large speakers. Mm. And it's not necessarily the right tool for the job, but it's the right tool to allow me to quickly get information out of my head Mm. and Mm. onto virtual paper. And that, I think, allows me to think through problems a lot more easily. As long as I get things out of my head, I realize what's going to work, what's not going to work. Whenever I need to sketch something and I don't have physical paper in front of me, and I often do, I usually carry around loose 11 by 17 paper. And I have an assortment of pencils and pens because I'm a pencil and pen nerd. And I'm always sketching things. But when I have to show something to other people, very often those people are a diaspora, and so I need some form of digital copy, because I hate the idea of drawing a picture, taking a photograph of the thing, and then hey. uploading a photograph, because it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I use OmniGraphle, And I use it exclusively on the Mac, okay. because I'm not a uh, – well, on the phone, it's ridiculous. Like, there's no possible way I could – I feel I could get anything done on a screen that small. It's, I've got fat fingers. It's just not – it's not a thing <laughs> – for me, <laughs>
0: mm, yeah. That's interesting. My my wife uses it on her iPad pretty much exclusively. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everybody's different. Of course, her fingers oh, yeah. are not that. Mm.
1: I also haven't had an iPad since the iPad three, which is the one iPad Apple refuses to admit existed. So mm. I've never heard of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I haven't had. Uh, I haven't had the need for one, frankly. Mm. I thought I liked them, and. When the iPad three was modern, my life was very different. I was commuting into Manhattan for work and my time on the train would be iPad time. I would be reading, you know, reading books, surfing the internet, a lot of consumption stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that one would do on your desktop or what have you. But I had this downtime of forty five minutes on a train from Greenwich and to or Stanford, depending on where I was living at the time, into Manhattan. But nowadays, I don't commute. Or when I do commute into my office, I now work in Stamford, which is the city next door to where I live. And the commute's only about 20 minutes by driving. Oh, that's not bad. It's not bad at all. And I chose that job in part to be closer to my partner, so we have more time together. And so I find that I don't have that time. And when I need to read something, if it's Twitter or something, I will read it on the phone. Or I will have I, I have multiple very large monitors uh, going on at once on my main desktop, and I just have my Twitter feed going on in the corner, and you know mm-hmm. Tweetbots just sort of casually going away. So my need for an iPad is nil. Yeah, really. I've almost reverted to a much more traditional sitting down at a desk doing big work things on a big computer. And my mobile self is very mobile. It's nothing bigger than a phone. And it's just a lot of sticky notes and a lot of paper and pens mm-hmm. that may or may not get translated to digital.
0: How much does the fact that OmniGraffle is so general purpose work for you? For instance, you can do so many different types of things from graphic design to wireframing. Oh, I love it. Layout, information architecture, whatever. Um yeah.
1: And that's why I use it and and Mm. why I'm such a huge proponent of it, because it's got a variety of tools that are fairly well thought out um, before the days of sketch and all of that, where you didn't really have an object-based canvas system. Except if you go way back, you have canvas, Mm. right? You had that hybrid vector drawing slash bitmap editor, but you really didn't have the sense of sort of an object-based application before. And even Sketch, frankly, is like terrible at it, right? So I still, to this day, go back to OmniGraffle over a lot of these other apps because it is so, it's freeing. Mm -hmm. It's got a variety of different tools. And as I said, those tools have become better over time. You know, The Bezier tool, now you can You know, segment lines and create shapes and Boolean and and all of that that you couldn't do in the past. And I use those capabilities extensively. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I'll create icons. I'll create layouts. I do a lot of stuff involving text. One of the things I love about omniGraphal objects, unlike Sketch or what have you, they have the concept of containers. Every object seems to be a container, so it can contain text or it can contain other things. And I really like that because whenever I move something, I usually want to move the things inside of it as well. And instead of grouping everything, it's really handy to double click on an object and then suddenly just start typing. And then have that be the thing, Mm -hmm. right? Which is just really handy. It's all these, again, very well thought out. um, I mean, OmniWeb, I mean, I was also an OmniWeb user for a bajillion years as well. A little bit of an aside. I was one of the only people that was a Next user. Mm -hmm. Around that time, I had a lot of financial services clients. And Deutsche Bank was a Next shop. Mm, Okay. Yeah. So they had both... Deutsche Bank, and what is now Verizon, what what was at the time Bell Atlantic, mm. 9X. They were both next shops. And as a matter of fact, Bell Atlantic slash 9X slash Verizon's point of sale system was next based. And so I've been sort of following the Omni Group and the stuff that they've been doing since that era, which is a little frightening and also makes me very old. So... Um- Segwaying,
0: yes. user experience, obviously, is, is a thing you care deeply about. But you've had some thoughts about user experience in kind of a different area than we're used to talking about.
1: Yeah. So even though my background is in human-computer interaction, which sort of implies a human and a computer. Actually doesn't imply it, it directly states it. The concept of user experience doesn't necessarily involve a screen. It doesn't necessarily involve a computer. It can be anything from you know the way ingress and egress works at a theme park, right? Disney is famous for having really amazing very thought out user experiences or customer experiences, right? I'll I'll sometimes use them interchangeably. And I know I'm going to get yelled at by, you know, the Nielsen Norman group or whomever, but Mm -hmm. uh, it's all the same concept, right? Where you've got a person who's interacting with your thing or things, and they're going to have an experience. So first and foremost, you're not creating user experiences. People have user experiences. You can just set them up for success Or failure or delight. But it's up to them with their baggage that they bring to experience the way they see fit. Again, that's why I love tools that are sort of open ended, like OmniGraffle and OmniOutliner and such. BB Edit is another huge one. But one of the things that my curiosity has sort of gotten the better of me is my partner, who is a lot older than I am, was recently diagnosed with cancer. And he went through radiation therapy, and I got to observe this as a user experience professional. Well, first off, before you continue, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to hear about your partner's diagnosis. Oh, yeah. Luckily, we caught it very early. Good. Yes, very much so. You know, he was at a normal checkup. They were doing normal blood work. And they noticed that his PSA, which is the leading marker for the prostate health, Mm. and a high number, um, and these are sort of small integers, right? So small integer jumps are actually considered to be quite profound. Mm. And he went from like a two, and then the next blood test that they did like roughly six months later, it was a 5.7. So a two is within normal range. Anywhere between, I'm going to say like zero and three is within the normal range. And anything above that, that is a a red flag. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you have cancer, but it means that, hey, there's something going on, you should probably investigate further. So the doctor who thought that that jump from that six-month period of time was a very significant one. And so it definitely warranted additional investigation. And I was like, well, this is really interesting. They clearly have a heuristic that says, okay, if this, then that. If this and this and this, then that. And it all came together like a giant chain. So as he's gone through this whole process, I've been studying how the doctors work, how the machinery works, how the hospital conducts their business with the patient. And as an observer, I can see, okay, this is the type of interaction that they're using. And it's really, really fascinating. So fast-forwarding a little bit, they did additional investigations, they found out that he indeed had cancer, they did a biopsy and all of that, and one of the things that they did was they gave us several options. They communicated to us the evidence and the pathways for these different options, and based upon the evidence, we chose a very short-term radiation therapy. It was a, a full month of radiation therapy. Every day, he would go in. and so that five days a week or Five three? days a week. Five yeah, days five week. days a week. So you kind of had the weekend to recover. Mm. But as folks may know, radiation builds up in the body. Mm. And so over the course of the treatment, your body is retaining this radiation. So side effects don't often appear in the first week or even the second week, they start appearing toward the end of the treatment and then they continue after the treatment. But prior to the treatment, there was all of this pre-treatment stuff that went on. Because it's a confluence of doctors and technicians and machines and human analysis, they did a variety of things. They inserted a what I call a gummy bear Uh, because that's basically what it is. Mm. They injected a bit of gel Mm. in between the prostate and the bowel just to give it a couple of millimeters of space. And if you remember your high school and or university physics, the inverse square law says that the radiation fall off is, well, inverse square, right? So the amount of energy that hits an area outside a certain radius is dramatically lower. And so even though you're only moving... The bowel out of the way a millimeter or two, that's a significant reduction in radiation and therefore a significant reduction in potential side effects. The beam is also really interesting because it focuses interdermally, meaning that because the focus is actually on the prostate and the beam goes through the skin, there's no incision. The beam goes through the skin, but because it's not focused, it doesn't damage the epidermis. Hmm. It literally only zaps the part of the prostate that they've targeted. Okay. And the concept of that kind of blew me away. Like, here's basically a laser of gamma rays that can precisely target these tiny, tiny bits of an organ that is roughly the size of a walnut. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. And, and it's uh, not damaging everything on the way through. Exactly. That's... It's really fascinating. Right there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so in order to do that, though, there's a lot of prep. As I said, you've got to make sure that your insides are in the right place. They also took a mold of his feet, not like a cast, but rather a mold so that his feet would always be in the same position on the machine mm-hmm. every time he came back. Mm-hmm. So every patient has their own little leg and foot mold to put their feet back into when they get back up on the slab. And uh, Is the slab also micro-adjustable, for instance? It's amazingly adjustable. Mm-hmm. So the slab is actually f- nearly fully floating. You get on it, you lie down, and the machine is a combination, like a CT scan slash MRI, with a gamma ray laser. So it's super science fiction-y stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's super crazy. And it literally revolves around the patient. So you get on the slab that's basically at, you know, butt height so that you can sit down and lie down. And then it raises up and kind of feeds itself partially back toward the machine. I'll see if I can get find pictures online because it's utterly fascinating. And the entire machine rotates around him. Mm. And that way it can target anywhere in 3D space. So that was the other thing too, in the, in the prep, they also internally implanted four gold registration marks so that it would show up on the scanner. And they also gave him, they're not permanent tattoos, but they're semi-permanent ink, the equivalent of like a super Sharpie, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. They painted uh, or, or drew registration marks on his hips So the room itself has all these lasers, not too dissimilar from a laser leveling site that you get at like Home Depot, Mm -hmm. except that it's meant to align a human being with the scanner and the machine. And so you've got the technicians who, after the patient lies down on the bed, maneuver the patient in place to line up their registration marks with the laser crosshairs. And that's how you know the patient is in the right place. That's amazing. Between that and the internal registration marks, you've got a three-dimensional sort of lock-in. Oh, and the other thing they did was they actually created a three-dimensional model of not only the prostate, but the surrounding areas. To pre-program the machine and the laser and merge that with the ground truth of the scan as it was going on in real time. So they would make any corrections. So they have like mm. the, the equivalent of the playbook of this is what I think I'm going to do. Mm. But then they would rectify that with the ground truth of the scan that's currently going on that's live. Because, you know, human organs are squishy. Yeah. And that's how they did it. And that, I thought, was utterly amazing. And it's done very quickly. That takes maybe five minutes, if that. Mm. The scan itself is maybe like a minute, but like maneuvering and getting everything in a position takes a little bit longer. So, yeah, you're in and out in 20 minutes maximum. And that includes changing and changing back, you know, putting on a gown. And,
0: and this is just a routine thing for for radiation treatment these days. Not, yeah. yeah. It's not the now, extraordinary so, version.
1: Right. So so Greenwich Hospital happens to have like a billion-dollar state-of-the-art machine. Mm. So not everyone gets to do this. Okay. But we happen to be very lucky. Some billionaire, because there are a bunch of billionaires in Greenwich, <laughs> and one of them apparently had prostate cancer and said, oh, and by the way, here's a bajillion dollars for this crazy machine. Mm-hmm. And so now Greenwich Hospital has it. So I don't know how many of them are in the country, but we're certainly the only one in the area. Mm -hmm. Uh, with that and so that's pretty cool but it it goes so much beyond that because the patient at every step of the way is informed and everything is so simple you drive into the oncology center and it's a separate building from the main hospital and so the layout is different the feel is different there is a valet so -hmm. you don't have to worry about parking your car You know, Because if you've got cancer, the last thing you want to care about is trying to find a place to park so that you can get your radiation treatment or your chemotherapy or whatever. No, there's a valet. It's right there. He takes your keys. You go upstairs and you check in. The people at the front desk know who you are before you even come because they know that your appointment is at this particular time. They give you a little wrist bracelet that has your name and your date of birth and all that and they ask you to say your name and your birthday to make sure they match up Mm -hmm. so that something doesn't go wrong. And then they put it on you. And then everything else is carried out, even looking out the window. So Greenwich is a a lovely, it's an urban town. It's, uh, I don't know, our population. Our population is maybe, I don't know, 60,000 or so. It's not huge. It's quite bucolic, but the hospital and the oncology center, they are both downtown. And seeing all the cars in the streets are kind of potentially agitating. And so if you look out the window anywhere in the waiting rooms, either for the radiation treatment wing or the chemotherapy wing, you only see trees and vegetation. Mm as if they've got these private gardens out the window. Mm. And it's absolutely gorgeous. It's like being in, in different space-time. You've got lovely Enya music going on. You've got a fake aquarium. You know, it's one of those digital aquariums, like the, like the old Macquarium from back oh, in the day. Sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, except it's super high-res, mm. and it's really pretty amazing. The cutting-edge versions of these things are quite realistic these days. And everything about it is pleasant. And they know that it's a difficult thing and everyone has their own experience. And they want to make this ordeal because it's hard, right? Mm -hmm. You know, going to therapy every day is hard. I think the chemo patients probably have it worse because that's something that affects their entire body. Mm -hmm. And so their fatigue is often much more pronounced. And a a
0: single administration can take hours. You know, it's no 20-minute deal. Right, maybe sitting there. It's much much more
1: involved, Uh, yeah, all day long. Yeah, right, and you know there are more side effects, etc. And so they make it just as pleasant as possible. One of the really lovely things is at your graduation, when you're done with your treatment, they give you a tiny little bamboo sprout, Mm. and that is sort of as a symbol of renewal and a symbol of life. Mm -hmm. And we still have ours in the bathroom. Oh, that's great. And it grows. It's grown about probably a couple centimeters since Uh we received ours. And toward the end, everyone knew us. And when we see them in town, like we see the oncologist at the Starbucks with some frequency, you know, everyone's very pleasant. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful system. And it's so very clear that everything about that process was deliberate and well thought out. That's something I want to explore. I want to explore that type of experience. I'm thinking about even turning it into a talk because it's so profound. And I think people can take away from this, one, that having cancer and going through treatment doesn't have to be a terrible ordeal. It's difficult, but you don't have to fear it. You know, because these people are on your side mm-hmm. and they want to help and they will do anything they can to help you out. And also that this is how we should treat customers. Mm. We should treat them as if they're real people rather than just a revenue stream, rather mm. than just, you know, rowdy people on Twitter. You know, these are people with real feelings, with different experiences that come to your app, come to your blog you know whatever and they're going to have their own experience and you can set up that experience to be a good one or not and you have to say to yourself well what would you prefer mm-hmm. but it's something i think we can we can learn from and apply to our own lines of work i don't know maybe maybe it's interesting maybe it's just me i don't know no, no it is. <laughs> uh,
0: it,
1: it's an illustration
0: of you know what you can do when you have respect for the users, right. uh, for the people. You know you know one thing about them. There's a thing. In this case, you know, cancer and radiation therapy. Now, in the case of software, we might know that someone's coming to Omnigraffle because they obviously need to do some kind of visual work. And that's really all we know about them. But mm-hmm. with the right amount of respect and care, it is possible to set them up to have the best experience possible. Yeah. Empathy for the user. Mm-hmm. Right on. Yep. So I'd switch gear at this point. Okay. And uh, we've got some other uh, lighter weight stuff to talk about with you. Sure. So, what would um, you like?
1: What would you like to know, Brent Simmons?
0: Well, let's see. So we have a listener question from Olaf oh. Hellman, and he asks, "Would you prefer in your next life to be reborn as prince or as an otter?"
1: <laughs> well, there can be only one prince. And unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Yeah. Although he's also in our hearts. Yes. Off forever. Yeah. I, I have this strange love of both Prince and Otters. And I love them equally, I think. I have a, a, a real love for Prince and all otters everywhere. Yeah. On, I on think a scale. So. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, I get it. Yeah. That kind of works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Specifically, small clod Japanese small clod river otters because they're adorable. I love sea otters as well, but you see a lot of sea otters and um, they're not quite as interesting to me. They're less frenetic, although Mm. they're probably more adorable. You know, they float on their backs and they hold hands when they sleep. It's kind of difficult to not fall in love with them. Even just talking about it, I'm like, oh my God, they're so great. (laughs) I know. And they they tangle themselves up in kelp to not drift away. And Mm. and river otters, river otters are so frenetic, and they play, and they romp, and they frolic. And people should be more otter. Mm-hmm. It's just that. There's a purity of their, at least the small-clod river otters. You have the larger, the giant otters, and those guys are just mean. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, they will, they will mess you up. Now, all otters will do that. I was actually at the Seattle Aquarium, mm-hmm. and... Maybe the day before, there was an incident. <coughs> mm. Incident. Yes, an incident in the otter area. in oh, God. the Yeah, the sea otters. Apparently, a gull decided to land in the otter area, and the otters proceeded to obliterate it. Mm-hmm. Feathers, blood everywhere, small children screaming. Yes. But uh, yeah, river otters are great, they're social. And they love being Mm -hmm. together and they, you know, they flop and they do silly things. And while they do not have uh, opposable thumbs, they are nearly prehensile. And Mm. so they can grab things and they can, they can do things. They can retrieve pop bottles from vending machines. They can, you know, play air guitar. They can do all sorts of stuff and they're neat. They also have pockets. So, you know, they have their favorite rock that they will put in their otter pocket and then <laughs> juggle said rock on their backs. It's like, come on. Like, that's the life. Don't we all just want to do that? <laughs> yeah.
0: I love how with otters, they're, they're unguarded. There's, there's no mixed emotions. They're, no. They're just they're straight up who they are. They're and just sometimes boys. it's a terrible killing machine. But
1: oh, yeah. Yeah, they will yeah. murder you. They will murder you given half a chance. Yeah. But yeah, so so yeah, re- respect the otter, mm-hmm. you know.
0: From a distance, safe distance. Yeah, they will eat your face yeah. and they
1: have no problems doing so. Not like Prince who will melt your face. That's a, That's a different, different story. That is a, a different, different story. Way. When, you know, he's one of the best guitar players on the planet and woefully underrated, I think. He could play anything. He said he played, you know, 27 different instruments. And uh, I believe him because Mm. on every record, that's him playing all of the instruments, save, you know, a few here and there, but he was just such an artist and he was so consumed by the need to create. He always had this thing going, this engine in his being that required him to create. And he had a very spiritual side, but for a long time he was religious in in a more traditional sense, and he really felt that God gave him this gift and allowed all of this music to flow through him, and if he didn't record it, if he didn't play it, that that gift would be taken away from him. Mm. And so, he was always recording, and he rarely slept, and... You know, he was constantly making something and, you know, 90% of it we'll never see because it's Mm. shoved away in a vault. But slowly but surely, one of the things to come out of his death is the sharing of these vault songs in a proper format. There's always leaks, you know. Mm -hmm recording artists, etc. You know, maybe they get a copy, but it's like a tape of a tape of a tape, and the sound quality is really terrible. But now we're starting to get master recordings of these songs. You've heard them in these really crap formats, and now they're in these pristine formats. And it's Mm. really a treat to be able to get to listen to those finally. There's a question of whether or not Prince would actually want that. That's up for debate, certainly. But as an enjoyer of his music, I don't want to say as a fan, he never liked that term. Fan is short for fanatic. Mm. And with all the negative connotations therein, he thought of the people who enjoyed his music as family. And so you hear a lot of fam going on. And I like the term. I just, I I find it a bit awkward. Um, But it's true. We are one giant purple family and it's really wonderful. Mm. You want to have that direct connection. You want to be able to communicate with your audience and you want to get that vibe. You know, one of the great things about being in a concert, Prince Concert specifically, is that he required you as an audience member to meet him halfway. You were required to get up off your ass and dance mm-hmm. and have a good time and really enjoy yourself. He wasn't going to play for you if you were just going to sit there like a lump. Mm-hmm. You know, he had no time for people who were just going to put their hands in in their laps and kind of stare at you and say, you know, perform for me. No, he wanted you to be part of that concert because he gained energy from the audience's energy, and that was a positive feedback loop. And it's the same thing with any other creator. When I had ruining it for everyone. One of the best things was when we were able to chat with folks on Twitter, when it was decidedly less of a dumpster fire, we could hear from visual effects folk and professionals and really hear what they liked about the show and what they were talking about. And that caused our show to change because Mm we liked that conversation. We, We didn't start out creating a show about creators in the film and television industry, but it kind of turned out that way. (laughs) And it was wonderful. You know, they were our audience. They were hip to us. We got hip to them. It was a wonderful time. And Maggie and I, Maggie McPhee, who's uh, at Tank Girl on Twitter, when we started this whole thing, said, we'll do this because it'll be fun. And when it stops becoming fun, we'll just stop doing it. And so the second it stopped becoming fun, we stopped doing it. It was great. You know, would I do it again in a heartbeat? Right now I've got some commitments that prevent me from doing that. But, you know, in another time, I would certainly do that sort of thing again because I love creating and I love making things, even if it's kind of crap. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know you're sort of compelled. Yeah. Like, oh, to, yeah, I totally
0: understand. Yeah. It's like, yeah,
1: yeah got to do something. Yeah. Right now in my life, there's too much going on. I can hold down my job and take care of Bill. But that's kind of it.
0: Well, caring for people you love is maybe the highest calling. So
1: I think so. You know, mm-hmm. at some point in time, I kind of had that moment of clarity where a lot of the stuff that I used to get bogged down in, I suddenly realized it doesn't matter And I think I know what does really matter. And that's the thing that's super important to me. And that's the thing I'm going to concentrate on. And so right now, that important thing that matters is Bill. Yeah, I'm a third generation atheist. I don't believe in a heaven, but I do believe in a right now, right here. And I believe that we are all we have. And so if you can help someone out, do it. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what, I, that's what I'm trying to do, you know? Yeah. Well, and on that note of great wisdom,
0: Christopher, thank <laughs> you so much. Um, oh, cheers.
1: So where can people find you on the web? So uh, these days... The easiest place to find me is on Twitter. I am at Octothorpe, O-C-T-O-T-H-O-R-P-E. And if you're at all interested, you can find the archived show of Ruining It For Everyone. Let's see if I can do this from scratch. You're listening to "Ruining It For Everyone with your hosts, Christopher Harrington and Maggie McPhee. Now I screwed that up already. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, too, right so people can click on it. And- I'm also the author of the Twitter bot Shaboogie Bot, which is a Twitter bot that spouts Prince lyrics every hour. It's non-interactive, but if you need a random dose of Prince every hour, yeah, that's a little fun. Something probably everybody needs, actually. And an hour may so. not
0: be often enough. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd also like to thank our intrepid producer, Mark Bosco. Say hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. And especially I want to thank you for listening. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. Music.